Hi guys, my name is Frank Chaparro, Senior Correspondent at The Block. You might know me as Frankie Scoops or Fintech Frank, but hopefully now you'll get to know me as the host of The Block's new podcast called The Scoop, made especially for decision makers and thrill seekers in the crypto market. Each week, I, along with one of my cohorts here at The Block, will talk with CEOs, innovators, and builders across the crypto market. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app in the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to start supporting Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to on-ramp fiat. No more waiting five days for your ACH payments to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. It's also a favorite of the block analyst, Steven Zhang. He uses Cash App when he goes to Chipotle and gets money back. He saves every time he eats a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. You can also use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, Chipotle, as I said, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, and Dunkin' Donuts. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play. I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to The Scoop, the Blocks podcast for crypto decision makers and thrill seekers. We have a very special episode for you today. We are joined by my colleague, Mateo Leibowitz, and the CEO of Securitize, a tokenization platform that's done eight deals. Here we are with Carlos Domingo. We're very excited. Carlos, thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invite. I'm excited to be here as well. No worries. You're welcome for the invitation. You're welcome for the beer. And... (laughs) And I apologize it's 8 in advance. This is why we're drinking beer. Exactly. It is not 1.30 p.m. at all. I promise <laughs> you, listeners, it is well within the reasonable hours to drink. But in any respect, we have tons of interesting things we're going to be diving into. We're going to be diving into tokenization, the murky regulatory you know, environment that surrounds it, why Carlos thinks he's doing a better job than the, what, 15,000 competitors you guys have. It seems like every day there's a new startup announcement in the tokenization uh, security token space. And and just generally, there's a misunderstanding about what these different companies do and what these different companies are, right? So sometimes when I talk to a tokenization company, they say, oh, we're not a security token platform. We're a token sale platform or a token issuance platform. Let's just start with what exactly Securitize is trying to do and and what has been your success at this point. Okay, so yes, I agree with you that there is a lot of people in the space and it's difficult to understand what everyone does. So, so let me see if I can manage to explain like the value chain and what we do, what we don't do. So within the value chain of issuing a security uh, on the blockchain, they have someone has to raise the money first, uh, and that is typically the issuer of the security that has the fundraising themselves, like I did the fundraising for my startup. Um, or sometimes there's a broker dealer or an underwriter that does the, the fundraising for that. Um, then, they, then someone has to actually onboard the investors. So make sure you do KYC, you do AML, you do accreditation, and you determine whether that particular investor from the jurisdiction where it belongs, which could be anywhere in the world, 
actually is allowed to purchase that security depending on sure. what is the regulatory framework. They're not framework. someone in North Korea or something. Someone in North Korea or in Crimea or that is not a retail investor in the US. If it's mm-hmm. an unregistered security, it depends. So every, okay, yeah. and that does not depend on where the security is being issued, but where the investor is. And that's one of the things that make it complicated if you want to do a, a global security offering is that every for every country, you have to take into account different regulations depending on, on the nature of the security. Once you've got the investors and they've sent you the money, they have to sign subscription agreements saying the purchase the security and what are the terms of the security and then you have to issue the digital version of the security as a token on the blockchain and that's why they're called security tokens because the technical mm-hmm. tool that you use to issue it is a token like the utility tokens before but in this case they represent a security sure okay. and you're doing and you guys are doing that last part we're doing the, the the onboarding of the investors and the kyc aml and accreditation as well as the issuance of the tokens okay okay now once you issue the tokens into wallets this this is a security, right? So it has a bunch of like restrictions in terms of how people can move it freely from wallet to wallet. So it's not like Bitcoin or like, you know, Ether or any, any other token that I can just send it to your wallet peer to peer. So because there are securities, they usually have restrictions in terms of who you can sell it to, when, how many, you know, shareholders can have an entire cap table without triggering like registration with the regulators and things like that. So these tokens are issued with a particular type of smart contracts that basically control the transfer restrictions. Mm. And that's what people refer to as the security token protocols, mm-hmm. which there are probably more protocols out there than actual security tokens issue, which is something if you want, we can talk about. And then once you've issued that, then this is a security, so it has to be managed, right? So there has to be, you know, you might have to pay a dividend, you might get divorced and then have to split your securities with uh, your former wife or uh, you know, your company gets acquired or the company issues more security and things like that. So th- those are like corporate actions that you have to do on the security. So it has to, again, be managed post-issuance as opposed to a utility token that just sits out there and you don't have to worry about it. So, um, and then the third piece is when you want the securities to become liquid and be trading on marketplaces. Okay, yeah, that's the, that's the, the thing that I don't think anyone has broached yet, which is... Once you issue those tokens, raise the money for those tokens, yep. then when do we get them on exchanges and or a different alternative trading system? Has that has that happened? I don't think yeah. that that's so, so there's there is few companies in the US that have a license for ATS and there is only three that I'm aware of mm-hmm. that have actually launched and are trading security tokens today. Open Finance was the first one that launched in November. And they are currently trading four tokens, the four of them issued with uh, our compliance protocol. So they are all coming from Securitize customers. Then SharesPost, uh, that has right. been doing an ATS yeah. for a long time for private securities, and then they are now moving to security tokens. And they have been trading only one token, a blockchain capital token, a BCAP right. token, yeah. which is, again, issued with Securitize. <laughs> and then the third one is T0, which launched, uh, I think it was January, February this yeah. year. Only That's been with, a failure, right? Only with their own token. <laughs> I, right? wouldn't, I wouldn't comment on that. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Why don't you have a comment? Um, no investment advice on, on this podcast. That's not investment advice to say that it missed, didn't, wasn't there a subjective goal? comment, if you want. <laughs> yeah. So that, anyway. And like, there's huge problems. Like, we can even talk about that. Like, you know, there's been tons of articles about, um, you know, why tech, large tech companies are waiting so long to go public and the problems with going public in the United States. Um, I don't know if, if like, That's a good these point. different so, types so of services improve it or make it any better. Well, they make it cheaper and easier, uh, but it's also not all companies should actually 
provide liquidity to the shareholders. Because if you're an early stage company and a startup and your numbers are not fully disclosed and people don't know how to value your company and, and your business is still immature and your valuation is changing, you know, exposing yourself to the public to trade it is probably not a, a, mm-hmm. a good idea. So I think that security tokens are Does good. Does that apply to security tokens as so, well? I think so, because yeah. in, in some sense you're doing an IPO, right? Because you're basically listing a security that can be traded by you know almost anyone, uh, and that the price is listed, right? The price of what the, mm-hmm. the token is trading. So you're becoming like publicly traded to some extent. What's the framework though that they're that they're under the regulatory framework? Is it a regulation a a plus? Is it is it something else? Like they're not when you issue one of these tokens and then they start trading on a secondary marketplace, they have to follow certain rules that you were alluding to earlier. That's right, yeah. What is, is it, is it a one size fit all that, that, that falls under reg A or reg D or something so else? Reg D is an exemption for not registering the security with the regulator. Mm-hmm. So there's two types of securities, registered securities and unregistered securities. And then if you register a security, it means the regulator needs to approve the, the security offering. And that's what typically mm-hmm. a, an, an IPO is, right? Mm-hmm. So you file with a regulator, you have to disclose a ton of things about like financials uh, for the last few years, audited numbers, like compensation of the board and, and the executives, like a lot of things. So when I do a token, when I do a security token uh, through Securitize, do I have to disclose all no, that same? That's a registered security. So, so all security tokens that have been done are in the US are unregistered. Well, how interesting is that? You know, we talk about security tokens being the, the registered version or the regulated version of They are regulated, I- but they are unregistered. They're regulated, <laughs> but unregistered. They're okay. two different things. They are regulated in the sense that they follow the regulation, mm-hmm. but they're unregistered with the regulator, meaning the regulator has not approved those tokens. And now in the US, an unregistered security has a restriction that can only be purchased by accredited, accredited investors. investors. And, and the main reason is that regulators, at the end of the day, their mission in life is, is to defend the, the little guy, right? The, the mm-hmm. retail investor. They don't care about people with money, right? Because if you have money and you want to piss it off and buy something stupid, then that's your problem, right? Mm-hmm. And security but you, tokens are pretty stupid. Well, no. it depends on the, on the, on the security, right? Yeah. So they might, they might be a stupid ones and they might be good ones like any other type of security. And mm-hmm. The fact that it's a token has nothing to do with the with the quality of the underlying investment. Uh, but because they're not approved by the regulator, then you know they, ha- they can only sell to they don't know, the investors in the US. Investment grade bracket, is that correct? Well, they're all investment grade in the sense that they are in- investable, but they're not, investment grade typically in finance means that some you know, rating agency has you know, rate your company as a certain investment grade, depending on the quality of the, of the balance sheet of the company. Mm-hmm. All these companies are too small to even get graded by anyone, right? So these are mainly, uh, you know, startups, uh, mid-size, some real estate, and some funds, small funds, and mm-hmm. things like that. So that's that's the, you know, what the space of security tokens today is alternative assets primarily. Mm-hmm. As far as the initial issuance of these tokens go, and 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 um, the fundraising itself, what kind of currency is using these these fundraisers denominated in? Is it fiat? Is it uh, via stablecoins or do you still see some kind it's of ETH, both ETC? crypto and uh, and fiat? I think uh, we haven't used stable coins for the investment process yet. Uh, even though we announced recently that we had integrated with USDC from Circle and Coinbase, um, but so far most of our issuers, if they if they want to get uh, you know fiat, they get fiat instead of getting a stable coin. And if they want to get crypto, they get crypto. So we usually take we'll take both through the platform. So I mean, actually, we do not 
take the money because we can't hold money on behalf of someone because we don't we don't have like a, mm-hmm. a trust license. But um, but we will integrate with an escrow provider to take fiat or with a crypto custodian like I don't know Coinbase or someone like that to take the uh, the crypto. So. Makes sense. Let's take a step back real quick and look at what exactly um, the benefits are to, to the folks that are coming onto your platform for issuance and then possibly one day having that token traded somewhere else. What is the reason they would do that? So there's a number of reasons. Uh, it depends on the on the company and the objective. One is capital formation, right? So so they perceive that by being able to do an, a digital offering of their securities and promote it online and then offer it worldwide, or, or pretty much worldwide, because we're capable of onboarding investors from multiple jurisdictions, they can reach out to investors that traditionally they will not be able to actually invest on that particular security. So if you look at blockchain capital, when they did the Bcap token, um, if I remember correctly, they had investors from 80 different countries. Uh, including someone on the North Pole that actually invested. So um, so that if you're raising funds for a VC, typically you will do it very privately. You will just talk to some family offices, to some pension funds, endowments, and things like that. And you know the, the normal investors will not get access to those type of assets. So so cap, you know capital formation is one of the things that is perceived as an advantage. The other one is automation of the process, right? So at the end of the day, if you even if you have as a normal startup, you have to manage the securities somehow, right? And most people. They do it with an Excel spreadsheet on the lawyer's uh, office. And then this creates a problem when you want to sell them later down the road. Because if you want to, like, let's say, buy some uh, Uber shares on the secondary market before the IPO, it's a very complex process because you have to see which share class you're buying, what type of rights they have, whether they have rights of refusal with someone else, what is the lockup period, whether that investor can actually buy, purchase that share, etc. And all, all these <coughs> cap table management and regulatory compliance can be coded on smart contracts on the blockchain and pretty much be executed automatically, hmm. which is a huge advantage. And then that leads to the fact that then you can then integrate with automated exchanges that do this trading automatically and provide liquidity for you know private placements that are traditionally liquid. Mm-hmm. As far as capital formation goes, uh, obviously we already have rather liquid capital markets, um, both public and, and private. Um, do you think that the types of companies that are pursuing uh, the, the tokenized security route, do you think those deals are perhaps more dubious and that's why they can't necessarily tap into existing capital markets? So first, most of the companies that are doing security tokens today they're not ready to access the public capital market because they're not large enough to do like an IPO. Sure. And they but then have we, ha- we have very kind of deep pockets in the private markets Correct. as well. So, so the private placement market is actually bigger than the public capital markets and it's been growing uh, more. I think that those companies, they, they probably see this as a better way of raising capital than trying to go through the route of like meeting VCs and meeting 50 VCs until you get one that says yes, etc. And they just kind of like crowdfund um, the process of, uh, of fundraising. Um, it's true that there's a lot of companies, like in our case, we get approached by a lot of pro- uh, projects that they want to do a security token because there's no way they're going to raise money from traditional sources and we usually reject those projects because that's a bad reason for doing a security token and those, if those projects don't successfully raise money and issue the security, there's no, no business for us, right? Because the issuance part is not where the business is. The business is about managing the security and, and, and charging fees on a monthly basis for a life security that you need to manage. And that's how you build recurrent revenue and increase the value of your company. So we, like last year, we got like 1,030 leads on the website, the people that just contacted us because they want to do a security token. And we only took 23. 
How do you go about deciding which ones you're going to accept? Well, so some of them are pretty obvious that they're not good deals. Um, so we do have a form online. What's the red flag? <clears throat> well, so, you know, very small deals. We don't take them because we don't think that the advantages of security tokens are going to apply to those and they're never going to get the, in, listed on exchanges for liquidity. You know, sometimes uh, people without experience of uh, fundraising or business plans that don't make any sense... Uh, um, you know, so so we have like a, a list of um, uh, you know filters on on the form of the website that we discard some deals automatically, send them nice thank you very much emails, saying, you know we are a capacity we can't take these deals, mm -hmm. and then try to be selective with the amount of deals uh, we take because if if we take bad deals, which we had taken some in the past when we started, the experience proof is that actually you end up you know spending a lot of time with the deal and not making money, so it's not worth you know just taking deals for the sake of, uh, of taking deals. And keep in mind that in, in our platform, as opposed to others, it's not self-serve that you can just go there and click, 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 and issue a token. But you actually have a contractual relationship with us. We put a person managing the process. Yeah. We customize the platform and the contracts and everything for that particular issue. So there's work involved. So unless the company has the money and, and is going to be on business long enough to be able to, to pay us fees, it's just not profitable. Yeah. And, and again, going back to this capital formation process, so do you think projects taking the tokenized security route, do you think perhaps they're doing that for ideological purposes in that they would like a busier cap table in a sense? Or do you think it really just comes down to avoiding the traditional fundraising route? I think it's both. So it depends on some tokens. Like, you know, some companies we've talked to, they, uh, some of our customers, they really do it, as you said, because they really want to, to give access to the company, to the, to the general public. Uh, as opposed to just like you know, play with VCs yeah, that right. have access to to those deals, and um, some companies they also do it because they can structure deals in a different way, like maybe a revenue share for a product line versus like giving a equity, so they can maybe avoid dilution, etc. I think that you know the same happens with the ICOs that there were good legit projects on the ICO space and there was a lot of garbage. I think the same thing happens on on the security token space. So, so. something that I've noticed, and I, and we've written about it extensively at the block, um, is the shift that's happening at some of, with some of your competitors. And I remember, um, it must have been two months ago, three months ago, we came to you and a few other firms and said, because we had heard that um, there were subpoenas issued. And you said there weren't. Not to said, me, at least. No, okay. <laughs> no subpoenas for securitize. And other people corroborated that. So I, I, I think you're obviously you're being truthful because uh, I spoke to other people who said that that was also not the case. But Regardless of whether or not there were subpoenas issued to, um, I had heard Coinless, Harbor, and you guys, there are certainly some activities in this market that firms like your your, your firm and others are moving away from. Um, dealing directly with investors is one example. Charging investors um, on a transactional basis. Um, providing capital markets advice to, to certain mm -hmm. clients. All of these things that traditionally would fall under either broker-dealer broker services dealer or, or registered investment investment. advisor. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So how do you, um, how do you make sure, um, and well, just stepping back quickly, so as a result, a lot of these other firms have, have gone on to basically white-label their solution and say, here, we're providing you this technology mm -hmm. to do on your own and then issue a token. Um, what, how does Securitize view this, this sort of complicated regulatory landscape and then operate in a business that doesn't necessarily take away from what the benefits are to issuing a security token. 
So first, we've been white labeled since the beginning. So if you go to any of our issues to the website, you will not even going to see the, the securitized logo or anything. So our business model from the very beginning has been we're a tech provider. We white label the platform. We give you all the tools of what you, the issuer or your broker dealer needs to do to, to basically, you know, from the capital onboard the investors. And then we'll give you all the tools for you to manage the security once it's been issued on the blockchain. So we've never been a broker dealer. Um, we've never fundraised for customers. We don't take transactional based compensation and things like that. So we've been very careful from the beginning to just stay, you know, in a very narrow thing and just do only one thing very well. But doesn't that leave a gap though, right? If I'm, I'm, if I'm an issuer, let's say, you know, big real estate project and I want to secure, uh, tokenize, uh, my building, right? mm-hmm. which we've seen elsewhere in the market. And I want that capital markets advice. I want to understand, right, who should my investors be? Where do I go to to, to secure investments? Um, if it's not securitized, who am I talking to then? There's- so first, my, my view is that if securitized, let's say, becomes a broker dealer like some of our competitors are doing um, and try to provide that advice, it's very difficult that you're a good broker dealer for every type of issuer. Because mm. we get issuers that do real estate, but we get all the issuers that are startups, we get other issuers that are um, you know, geographically in different parts of the world, etc. So for me, it's hard to think that a company, a startup like us or like some of our competitors can actually become a good enough broker dealer for all those type of deals. Because you will need an army of people with different skills and different contacts and a different role. Like, so our approach has always been we partner with people, and then we partner try to partner with people that complement us. They either have broker dealer or you know investment banking uh, licenses and experience, so they can help our issuers and people that have you know trading platforms and ATS licenses to be able to provide the liquidity. And we just sit in between, as if you want a transfer agent on the blockchain that controls. The, the compliance of the security or the corporate actions and provides the integration with uh, with these pieces. So I, I know the, so those companies might have pivoted and changed what they were doing. I don't know if I resolved the first opinion or not. It's interesting, so one of them, right? So uh, one, one company basically had folks who worked for a registered investment advisor working in the building, right, with Harbor. Or, geez, well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Harbor's setup was such that you had the registered investment advisors who worked for a separate entity within their same building. And so the money that would be paid for those services would kick up into that that different entity that was affiliated with or either owned by by Harbor. But um, the, there's there are folks out there that are getting uh, creative, maybe, with, with, this, with the way that the regulatory structures in the U.S. works. But regardless, what I I'm think... I'm getting creative asking for trouble, to be honest with you, <laughs> especially <laughs> in the U.S. So. Well, so, yeah, I think many people would probably argue that. Um, what about, there are some folks that might be, might look at you guys and say that you're not conservative enough, like Templin we were talking about before, right? They're, they're opting to uh, issue their security tokens on a private blockchain, with with Simeon because they're worried about the potentiality of um, what was it that basically that uh, Ethereum miners would I'm be broker dealers. broker dealers and so I, I honestly I'd like for you to dissect that argument with us because maybe Mateo's familiar I'm not a thousand percent uh, I can, I can on it but it. yeah so so we, yeah explain what their argument might be and then we can sort of so, get so to the, first the little, before we go into the argument we can then debate if you want the pros and cons of doing uh, securities on yeah, public blockchain sure. versus a permission-based blockchain. I think that'd be interesting. Um, and then the second one is whether the argument of that the broker, the, the miners being broker dealers, is actually a, a problem with the public. Let's blockchain. focus. So. Let's focus on what the argument okay. is for so, them being broker dealers. So, so their argument is that uh, because they... And to be clear, it's not just Templum that's saying this. Well, it's primarily Templum has actually filed a, a petition to the SEC to reply. 
uh, to them, which obviously the SEC is not obliged in any way to reply, and I don't yeah. think they're going to reply uh, about clarifying whether the Ethereum, uh, you know, miners on the public Ethereum blockchain are broker are broker dealers. We've well, been not. saying the same things about you know miners being money transmitters as well, and whether they need money. Yeah, so I just mean yeah. it might be a different story, but the broker dealers. So clearly, broker dealers actually. You know, one of the things that determines a person being a broker dealer is that it takes a transactional based compensation. Mm-hmm. So I send you, you know, a hundred dollars of securities, and I take a two percent or one percent or five percent or whatever. Um, and then, if you think about what Ethereum is, it's basically a world distributed computer, right? That's what it is. It processes computing cycles that you know execute algorithms on top of the Ethereum virtual machine. So those those miners that take, you know, a fee for you know, mining the blocks and approving transactions, they actually have no idea about what they're doing in the sense that they actually don't understand the content of, of the transaction and the value of what they receive is irrespective of the monetary value of what potentially is being transacted there. So a, a miner in Ethereum is going to get compensated equally for approving a transfer of one token to you and whether this token represents a million dollars or a billion dollars. It's completely irrespective of the actual value of the, of the token, right? Because they just approved the transaction. And this is why... You know, there's a lot of people that get fascinated when they say, oh, they transfer $150 million of Bitcoin for only $1. Well, if you transfer one Bitcoin, it also costs $1 because the transaction is about, you know, mm-hmm. updating the ledger irrespective of how many, you know, uh, you know things you're transacting. And that's, that's one of the arguments against this being broker-dealers. If anyone that is processing transactions uh, in a computer that, you know, are transactions related to securities will have to be a broker-dealer, then you probably have to have IBM, you know, mainframes being broker-dealers and AWS servers being broker-dealers and <laughs> anyone that processes transactions being broker-dealers. So I don't think that that's going to fly. Um, I think that there is much better arguments why some companies don't want to do securities on the public blockchain, which are very legitimate. Uh, and, and some are coming to you and saying the same thing. And, yeah, but they're not saying that. I don't. I haven't talked to anyone that actually agrees with the argument yet. Yeah. So, but maybe there's one out there besides uh, Templum. But basically, the, the 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 pushback we get about the public blockchain is the following: first, is performance, mm-hmm. which is a very legitimate one because we are. Because we actually have issued tokens on the public blockchain and we've actually issued millions of tokens with a complex smart contract infrastructure. It could take us like a day and a half, literally, to issue all the tokens. People are not aware of that. And then the second thing is that the cost is completely random. So you'd never know how much it's going to cost you to do things on Ethereum because it keeps the, the fees keep changing. So it's not predictable from a cost perspective of how much uh, you have to pay today because it's very cheap. You know, it's not a concern, but the moment this goes up in volume, you're going to have the performance problem and you're going to have the potentially the, 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 the unpredictability of the cost. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the thing. The third argument, which is also a very valid one, is that the public block, uh, blockchains are pseudo-anonymous, right? So I see a wallet that receives tokens. I actually don't know who the wallet is, but I can actually infer things about what happens. So if you, today, securities we issue on the blockchain, you can actually go to Etherscan, we actually work with them on tagging them as security tokens. You can see, you know, look for BCAP or for SpiceVC on any security, and you can actually see how many securities were issued to which wallets, how many wallets, uh, you know, transacted, and the whole history of how the security moved, right? And even though you don't know the individuals, you actually can figure out the structure of the security. And, you know, obviously some banks don't want this to be out there mm-hmm. on, the, on the public, right? Because if someone can then figure out who the wallet owner is, then you can trace back all the history of, uh, of the trades they've done. So the, the lack of, you know, uh, anonymity on the public blockchain is, uh, is another problem. And then the final one, I think, is, is governance, right? Like if today there's, there's a problem with Ethereum, who do you call? 
Vitalik Buterin got Twitter and she tried to get him to answer or you call the Ethereum Foundation. So a lot of these banks want to have someone there that can actually provide them support or, you know, if something breaks, uh, et cetera. So. Yeah. I think that kind of leads to a broader question, which is why blockchain in the first place for these assets? Yeah, so... Uh, and, and sorry, just a, a tiny bit of context for our audience. You know, the, 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 the primary value proposition when it comes to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ether, is their bearer-type properties, their censorship-resistant nature. That obviously doesn't apply to a securities offering, uh, a, a tokenized securities Correct. offering. Uh, so, so what are the advantages of issuing a security on a blockchain? So <clears throat> a blockchain at the end of the day is a distributed ledger that people can trust that the content hasn't been tempered with, right? So, and then if you think about the process of issuing securities, there's a lot of people in between that participate, right? And then they participate to be able to guarantee that the process happens flawlessly. So you have the, the broker dealer, obviously, which this mm -hmm. probably is not going to disappear because someone has to fundraise the money. But then you have, <clears throat> you know, people like issuing and paying agents that basically settle payments of securities. You have custodians, you have transfer agents. Um, you have a bunch of people that are, the system is being built to make sure all these things have uh, you know transaction finality and that nothing breaks, and then you can actually implement everything on this distributed ledger um, in a way that you can probably eliminate a lot of these um, players that they exist to guarantee that the system works. That you could guarantee that the system works because it's on a blockchain and it's a distributed ledger that is not controlled by any one entity. So, so I think there is an argument about blockchain probably being a very good digitization platform for certain type of assets uh, that require multiple, let's say, stakeholder collaboration, as opposed to do it on a centralized database that someone will have to, you know, go there and control and manage, like today happens with DTC, for instance, that they actually have a central database sure. where everything gets settled, right? But as you said, you know, there are perhaps scenarios where something goes wrong with the Ethereum uh, blockchain. So that could be uh, some kind of contentious fork or that could be a, a, a reorganization right. in the traditional capital markets we we have recourse and that's what's nice about these these traditional markets is that if something goes wrong you can kind of roll it back and uh, and and make everyone whole huh. you know we, we we could find ourselves in a situation where miners purposely target transactions related to security tokens and perhaps censor those transactions or extort uh, users who are interacting with those kinds of assets with a higher fee, um, you're not going to run into those problems with a centralized ledger. Correct, but if if the <coughs> if the miners can collude to modify the blockchain, that's a problem not for security tokens, but for Bitcoin, Ether, and for any cryptocurrency, right? Because they will suffer the same problem. So the whole idea is that the the big public blockchains you know, the likelihood of this happening is very low precisely because of the size of the of the network, right? I think that the the public blockchain uh, versus the permission-based blockchains or a centralized database, if you want, is a very similar uh, situation of what happens with cloud computing, right? Mm -hmm. So when cloud computing started around 2004, 2005, and AWS launched, I was actually living in Seattle at that time. I was the CEO of a startup, and for us, it was like, wow, this is very cool. What right? was the startup that you were doing? It's called Lizard time. Tech. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the CEO of a company called Laser Tech that was acquired by a company I was working. Mm -hmm. um, so I was living in Seattle, and so I knew the guys from, from AWS. And then, you know, for a startup, actually being able to put your, you know, servers on the cloud and just have someone 
providing you computing and storage and paper usage. It was great, right? So we got rid of all the IT stuff and all the data center costs and things like that. But then after that, I moved to a company called Telefonica, which is a Fortune 500. And then <clears throat> for a Fortune 500 company that was running you know, a telecommunication network with 200 million customers, they couldn't put the servers on the cloud unless they have certain guarantees of performance. So they need to have an SLA to start with, which Amazon, people don't remember, but at the beginning, AWS didn't have an SLA. So you put your computing there, and they would not guarantee you what's the uptime, period. So you have to live with mm. the uncertainty of whether tomorrow your website is going to work or not. Today, obviously, this has been fixed, right? <clears throat> you also didn't have any way to guarantee the, the bandwidth from your place to the data center. Because at the beginning, the cloud infrastructure was very primitive. And today, all these things have been fixed. There's MPLS lines, and there's all the stuff to make sure that the connectivity that come forth from the cloud uh, you know, data centers is very good. You didn't have visibility about the security measures uh, to, or, or you know, uh, data retention policies and things that large companies need to know, right? So large companies build private clouds, which a lot of people argue, oh, a private cloud is a stupid thing, right? Because the public cloud is the one that really gives you all these advantages of shared resources, just, you know, elasticity and things like that. And to some extent they were true, but at the same time, you, you needed to fix these other problems. So private cloud was a good compromise for people to be able to benefit to some extent about this technology without embracing something that was too far out there for, for them to use it. So if you think about today, the situation on the blockchain is very similar, right? I think people see the advantages of blockchain, but many companies, are, for, for very good reasons, they're not ready to go to the public blockchain. Eventually, I hope that public blockchains will get fixed, either Ethereum or someone else that comes, and sure. then people will be able to move there. Tron, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Again, what, what I think is... convinced. I, 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 I but, am. but we could, we could go back and forth all day on the uh, merits of... Uh, well, I think it's an important. I think it's an important one, and and generally, I think it's the the largest criticism levied at the uh, tokenized security it might, landscape. It, it, might, it might be the reason why we haven't seen that many deals. I mean, you've had a lot of folks come to you, but like you said, I don't think the people come. What, uh, what, what does the deal flow look like? Like moving into the next like half of the year? Um, oh, we go. How does that pipeline? We, we have our. Uh, a lot your, of a big pipeline, full? and it's actually growing. But as I said, we're trying to be very selective about sure. who we take as customers because, mm. you know, for us, taking a customer that it doesn't have a, a good project or is going to mm. issue a security that, you know, like some of them that have been issued out there that have zero wallets registered because there's no tokens being issued, then mm. that doesn't make how many, sense. How many do you think by the end of the year? So when I was at 20, when I was reporting on the New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq, I would ask the same questions: How many IPOs in the next six months? And they would they would never answer the question or be very vague. So we have twenty six now. So I can think of by the end of the year being you know somewhere between fifty to hundred at the pace that we're growing. Yeah, interesting. It, with the resurgence of Bitcoin, has that played into more folks getting interested in doing this, or are the yeah. two things completely uncorrelated? I think they are to some extent correlated because we still get a lot of people coming from the crypto space that you know understand that an ICO probably is, is illegal or it has legal risks, and then they would prefer to do a security token offering, and that their audience is actually crypto people, and therefore mm -hmm. the fact that crypto is up makes it easier for them to raise money. Have you ever had someone that was thinking about working with you and then decided to go to Binance to do an IEO? Or? Actually, we do have now some people that say, okay, I was going to do an STO because it's legal, but now I can do something illegal somewhere else that <laughs> seems to be okay. So yeah, this definitely is happening. Uh, what do you make of these IEOs? Well, you know, I think that, you know, uh, the, the SEC has already said, but, you know, these guys are acting as broker dealers, right? Because they're raising money on behalf 
of uh, of other people. So so in certain jurisdictions, that's certainly prohibited the way Just they're doing. Break it. out your VPN. I, I find <laughs> it. Uh, I find it interesting that that you mentioned that there's this overlap between um, kind of the audience or the market for tokenized securities and and crypto assets really because you would think that they have very different um upside opportunities and and uh, risk profiles as well um do you expect to see that relationship continue over time or do you expect that to be kind of a uh a, a a, a um, an emergence of a of an entirely separate market for tokenized securities. I, I think that eventually. So I think that SDOs are are the legal version of ICOs. Is how the kind of industry has started and what everyone talks about. But I think for for SDOs or digital securities to be meaningful, they have to move from let's say alternative assets where they are today into more institutional assets, and those assets have nothing to do with with crypto. These will be people that we talk to, that they actually see the value on digitizing the process of issuing securities. And then, as you said, there's many ways you can digitize things, right? You can digitize things with a central database, or you can dis digitize things with a distributed ledger. And some people, uh, you know, find the, the option of doing it with a distributed ledger, given that, you know, everyone plays in a different part of the value chain, a very good alternative, uh, as a, if you want, collaboration platform. And what, just real quick, what would be the best comparison, just out of my own curiosity, in your mind, of securitized to traditional capital markets, like what 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 type what of company, business, uh, business or a transfer company? agent, a transfer a transfer, the computer shares. Uh, I used yeah. computer shares when I was working at Telefonica as an executive. Mm -hmm. I got shares from the company, so computer shares basically holds the record of who has the shares for the ones they know. Because like if a broker mm -hmm. dealer, like Fidelity Bank, where someone has uh, is trading securities, you actually don't get to see who holds those securities. You only see the, the street name of the of the broker. But the the transfer agent is basically the one that provides. The, the, the compliance of the security that approves the transfers, that does the, the mm -hmm. corporate actions like conducting votes and paying dividends and things like that. Now, computer shares, from my own personal experience as a user, could take weeks for you to actually transfer securities. Like when I left my company, I wanted to transfer securities out of computer shares account and to my own broker dealer to sell them. And then it took me literally weeks hmm. uh, to do it. While, and in, in actually in one of our customers, they were working with computer shares alongside us, and then computer shares, it would ask for request at least two weeks to approve the transfer of a security. Because they do it manually, right? So they'll go and look at the contract and what you've bought, when you bought it, and, and things like that. Well, with digital securities, you can actually do it programmatically uh, using smart contracts that basically have coded all the compliance rules. So therefore, the transfer, checking whether the transfer can happen or no, is immediate, so. Interesting. Well, I, f I finished my beer. So I want to get into some more lighter stuff about the founding of Securita. People tell <laughs> me that at the beginning. I know, but I always, people say this to me, they reach out about the podcast, which they, they, they like it, but they go, Frankie, like dive straight into like the deep end of the pool before, <laughs> like, you know, let's have some foreplay first before we get into it. But okay, let him ask so one question. Well, more, before we get one to more the, the foreplay. So, um, <laughs> Again, when you consider the, the the buy side in the market for these tokenized securities being uh, blockchain-based tokens, you have to custody these these tokens in, right. a, in a particular manner. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, being bearer assets, bearer-ish assets, because I imagine there is uh, recourse in in the real world if if things go wrong. But but being these blockchain-based assets, they have to be custodied in in particular way. That is complicated and, and that is expensive and, and really there aren't that many 
institutional grade qualified custodians on mm -hmm. the market today. That's true. Um, so why would a, uh, let's say, a, a hedge fund that is in the market for securities bother buying tokenized securities rather than just going and, uh, you know, dipping their hands into the equities market, bond market, and, and, and buying through that? So, so first, if you're a hedge fund uh, or a, you know, an investment uh, bank or whatever and you hold securities, you still need to use a custodian, right? Sure. So, so they will use State Street or you know, BNY Mellon or whatever. Um, so of course, those guys are not qualified custodians for digital assets today. And they, they, the existing ones are you know, like Coinbase and uh, you know, Kingdom Trust and people that you know, are kind of like more uh, startup type companies. Uh, but there exist qualified custodians that can today hold securities in digital form uh, on wallets. So that already exists and it's not necessarily much more expensive than, than what the other custodians, uh, custodians do. So I think that the, the problem is we, you, know, you need to make it simple for people to hold security tokens, right? So if, there is, if, if security tokens have certain advantages but they have certain disadvantages, people are not going to adopt them, right? Um, so, so you're absolutely right that the infrastructure needs to be there to make it you know, as easier uh, to hold digital securities as you hold traditional securities. And then once you're there, then you can benefit from the other advantages about the, you know, the automation, the, the digitization of the process, the automated compliance, liquidity, and things like that. But until those problems are solved, you know, for the institutional investors entering the space, it's going to be a problem. Which, by the way, is the same problem that happens with cryptocurrencies. So for institutional investors, unless there's, you know, custodians they can trust, they, they will not actually know want to buy Bitcoin. So... Absolutely. And, and then when you consider this idea of um, funds themselves tokenizing, and, and we've seen that with blockchain capital as well, usually when you see funds trading on public markets, they, they actually trade below uh, net asset value. Mm -hmm. um, so again, why, why, why do you see this, this trend emerging of, of funds and investment vehicles tokenizing themselves. But if you think about the venture capital, even though it's, it's a huge industry, it's actually a very tiny asset class, right? As opposed to many other asset classes. And the number one reason why, you know, VC is a small asset class is first because it's very risky and second because it's very liquid. So that makes it that when people allocate their portfolio into different asset classes, you know, VC is always going to be like the smallest one for those reasons, right? Because basically on a VC, you're, it's a blind pool where you give money to someone for the next five years, and you have to be paying them every year, and you don't get to see anything what they do. You don't know what they do. You know they're investing in very risky assets that have a very long return periods, uh, etc. And you know if you're lucky, seven to ten years after, you're gonna get some money back. Uh, and I think that that makes VC, except for like the tier one VCs, that people assume that they're gonna be making money. For everyone else, it makes it actually complicated to raise VC money. So if you can actually eliminate at least one of the problems, which is the the fact that there is no liquidity then you can then probably improve capital formation from venture capital firms. Mm -hmm. So that was the whole, this, this is the whole idea um, around VCs uh, tokenizing. So, and I think that eventually when that really happens, the ones that are not tokenized and don't have liquidity will actually be, will be at disadvantage, right? Because if I have two VCs and you're two VC managers and you're kind of like equally good, um, you know, what will I give it to you if you have zero liquidity options versus uh, Frank, if Frank has, uh, you know, liquidity options? Of course, liquidity is still not there. So we're talking a bit, uh, you know, uh, futuristic scenario, but uh, it could happen, right? And there's actually a, a kind of like an OTC market for LP interest of funds where people are trying to get rid of their LP interest because they've been there for five years and whatever their financial situation has changed and they need to sell it or uh, the fund because companies now take very long time to go public. The fund is not returning any money to anyone for a very, very long time. 
So this secondary market for LP interest already exists, but it's extremely inefficient because precisely all the compliance about how can I buy the LP interest from you? Do you think that's the biggest near-term opportunity for, for security tokens? I think that's a good one uh, because also it gives option to people to invest in a venture capital firm, which typically is very difficult to access as an investment. Um, uh, real estate, obviously, is something a lot of people talk to. Uh, we've done some real estate deals. Uh, you know, I think that you know we'll see more real estate coming because that's you know fractional ownership and some of the characteristics of security tokens fit well with uh, with real estate. But I think that the the, the best target is probably. Mid-sized companies that are, you know, 250 to 500 million dollars that doing an IPO is too expensive for them, and they've been around for like five, seven years. So they want to provide some liquidity to their, you know, employees and shareholders, and then they decide to tokenize. I think that's probably a very good target. It's still not happening, but uh, you know, the moment we start seeing those type of companies coming out, that could be a very good, uh, you know, thing for the market. Interesting. Well, now that we both have finished our beers <laughs> within the hour, um, take the next, you know, ten minutes just to go through. How you got to this point, right? How did you, you know, decide you were going to start this company? Um, what was that process like? You, so, were, you, were, you were coming from Dubai. I was living in Dubai when I started, uh, you know, in 2017. Um, I had been working in the telco industry for close to 10 years, first in Telefonica, and then I was working at that time at Du, which is the, the local uh, telco operator. And I was looking at your LinkedIn. You've had like a thousand jobs in the past. Like that's not true. I spent eight years in Telefonica, four years in my previous company. Maybe it was before, or maybe you advised no, no, a lot of companies. Exactly. So, so that's actual why. jobs I had very few, but yeah. I've been on very many boards. Uh, gotcha, gotcha, uh, gotcha, things gotcha. like that. But they got to get jobs. me on a board of a company. <laughs> Keep like in mind, I was working for a, for a very large company that we invested in other companies. Yeah, so gotcha. I became chairman of this company. I wasn't doing my property diligence. Join the board of Securitas. So have you. <laughs> after this podcast yeah really not so, after this podcast so I was I was in Dubai and I had you know done some work around blockchain uh, as part of a project for smart cities with the Dubai government but it was all like you know more enterprise type of blockchain applications we did like a trade finance another one for digital records on the blockchain and things like that so I was really not that familiar with the crypto side of things and Bitcoin and things like that and then in February 2017 I, um, I traveled to Barcelona to go to the Mobile World Congress uh, which is like this big telco conference they do with 100,000 people. I've been going there. And this year was the first time I didn't go after like 12 years of going every year. Okay? Wow. So, and then I met with um, a friend of mine called Brandon Ike, which now is very popular on the, on the crypto scene because he's the, the founder of uh, Brave and Basic Attention Token. And when Brandon was the CTO of Mozilla, Brendan and I run a project together called Firefox OS, where we were trying to build a mobile operating system based on HTML5 to make it open for people to basically install applications and things like that. So mm -hmm. Brendan and I became friends. He left Mozilla, I left Telefonica. We always stay in touch. So I met him two years prior when Brave was kind of starting at the beginning. The wallet was uh, using Bitcoin for the payments. And then in 2017, in February, he told me, Oh, you know, I'm gonna, you know, this new network called Ethereum has launched, and you know that you can create your own currency, and then I'm gonna switch from Bitcoin to this one, so I can control the monetary policy of my currency, and I'm gonna pre-sell it to to investors. So he was basically describing an ICO to me when I have never heard of ICOs. So I went back to Dubai, and then I read, you know, this this newsletter called TechMem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like. My first five minutes of the day after the block, of course, is uh, <laughs> is read that because it just gives you like a snapshot of whatever has happened. If it's something big, you can see like a, all these links there, and then so I always read that. So he was actually there, and like Mozilla founder raises uh, what I can't remember what it was thirty five million dollars in thirty seconds. I was like, what? <laughs> That's not what I understood from the conversation. 
So I started texting him. He's like, what happened? And he's like, oh, well. well he's like, don't <laughs> talk to me. I'm busy on a boat somewhere. <laughs> Picking no, out I mean, Lambos. He's the one. Yeah, I have still the messages here. So I'm like, Ethereum, smart contracts, tokens, that's where the innovation is going to happen. That's where the next thing you have to quit your job and come here, do something in this space, blah, blah, blah. So, so that was got me excited. So I started then at that time, I started buying Bitcoin, Ethereum, participating on ICOs, and I just got excited about, about this. And, and a common friend of us was, you know, setting up together with his partner, they were setting up Spice BC as a traditional like venture capital firm. Nothing to do with blockchain, nothing to do with tokens, etc. And then the idea was like, well, why don't we do an ICO for fun? That could be, you know, a good way to raise money because they had been trying to raise money yeah. and they didn't raise money. And guess what? When you want to do an ICO for fun, the first thing you come across is like, this is a security. So if we do it the way like Brendan had done it, we're going to go to jail for sure. <laughs> so, so we got lawyers in the UK, Alan and Aubrey, and started working with them how to do an ICO for fun. The, the, the concept of security tokens didn't even exist. This is a term that kind of came a bit later. And then, you know, we started looking at what does it mean to issue a security on the blockchain and what type of constraints from a regulatory perspective you have and what type of smart contracts you need to build to control the transfer restrictions and basically building securitized for ourselves, for SpiceBC. And then in September 2017, we announced the project to the public. I went to a conference in London and basically announced we're doing the first fully tokenized BC fund. Back then, Blockchain Capital had done it already. And I had researched in very, very much detail about exactly how they did it, like, you know, how the token was built, constructed, who they have used, and, and everything. I had decided to, like, basically build the stuff ourselves. Mm. And then, if you guys remember, that summer, the, the DAO, you know, report from the SEC came out. So people then started realizing, you know, a lot of the ICOs are maybe unregistered securities. And more importantly, there were some people like Stephen McKeon, uh, which you guys probably know, I think I contacted him like in September 2017 or something, and then David Sachs before mm -hmm. Harvard was funded. Uh, they were like out there saying, you know, tokenizing real world assets on the blockchain makes a lot of sense. It has a lot of advantages. And Stephen published that uh, article saying the, the security token, I uh, can't remember what, what the, the title was, um, a thesis about why this is important, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Pompliano was out there saying real. Yeah, at that time, Pop was not in Bitcoin, but wasn't security tokens as well and tokenize the world. And, and so a lot of people approached us um, and told us, like, okay, we want to tokenize things. So, how, who are you working with for tokenizing Spice BC? And we were like, that's our own technology. So, my co founder, Jamie Finn, he had actually invested in Spice BC mm -hmm. and he was sitting in San Francisco where you know, a lot of the early trends happened. And he was telling me, look, there's an opportunity what you guys are building there to offer it to other customers and have like these guys line up already that gotcha. want to use it. So we took the decision to span it out and create Securitize. And so what's next? Let's end on what's what's next. What's the next six months going to look like? Um, you mentioned you're doubling the team here in New York. Um, and not only in the next six months, I'm interested in you know, five, ten years. <laughs> but I'm interested in the next six months. Well, <laughs> we take the first six, the my, first six my months. My question first. is more interesting. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, let's definitely, go. no, six, uh, six months, of course. Uh, that's a good time frame. That's a, that's a good time frame, but, but then, but also but then five we, we want to be more ambitious than that, you know. That's right. Uh, we want to be more They're going to be around, though, in five years. Well, I'm, I'm interested to hear Carlos's thoughts. Um, so, so and, and, six, and, first six months and then five years. So, sure. six months first is, I think that, my goal within the next six months is to do a security token issuance of an asset that is very, very, very institutional. And we have a pipeline of people that we can actually bring. What do you mean? Someone coming from very traditional, uh, you know, finance background, uh, you know, or... What would the asset be? We're working on a number of those. Uh, I think either will be real estate or fixed income. Um, oh, so and then, like a fixed income. So those, situation. because that's what's going to signal the market that this is not only early adopters of so technology. Like a bank coming to you to tokenize a, a fixed income asset? Yeah, we're working with some banks uh, on doing that. 
at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, and that's all I can say for the next six months. But th- this is probably, you know, the what big uh, the big project. Well, we've already <laughs> seen some banks experiment in that. Some area, banks right? have done something. I think we want to take it one one level uh, deeper. Australian banks yeah. as well, bond issuances. <laughs> now five years. Right, five years. Five years. So what I think is going to happen in five years is that first I don't think it's going to take five years. It's going to take five to ten years. And then the reason I think is that most people think that because every technology that comes to market gets adopted faster, that blockchain will be adopted faster than like let's say the internet because the internet was adopted faster than the TV and the TV was adopted faster than the radio. Mm-hmm. And I think this time it's going to be the other way around. And my argument is the following. So the, the things you can break when you digitize music are very immaterial, right? So if today I'm listening to you know, Spotify and this, I, I remember Spotify at the beginning, they used to peer, peer-to-peer uh, streaming uh, at the beginning when they started. And that meant that like half of the time you could actually not listen to the song. <laughs> and then of course they fix it and now it works very well, et cetera. But you know, if you cannot listen to your song on your phone or you know, if you put, I don't know, you know, Madonna out of business or whoever is producing their, their uh, you know, their, their record label, that doesn't really impact the, you know, has a big impact to the society, right? But today, anything that touches financial services, whether it's, you know, you cannot go yeah. and pay uh, your dinner because your Apple Pay doesn't work, like it happens to me very often, or your, your salary doesn't get to bank account because someone has done it with uh, some sort of crypto technology and it has failed or, mm-hmm. you know, or there's a settlement of securities of like billions of dollars and suddenly that fails and, you know, you lose a billion dollars. And so all, I think all those things are, will take longer to get digitized just because of the nature of the assets that we're digitizing. So I think a lot of the people on the blockchain don't realize that these things are going to happen, but are going to take a lot longer than people expect. So I see the same thing um, with, uh, you know, digital securities. I think that there is a lot of things that can go wrong but today for alternative assets, as I mentioned, it's not really a big problem. At the moment, you start like moving into taking you know, bonds that are trillion dollar markets and things like that, and you try to digitize them. You know, A lot of the players that you're trying to displace there, whether they are the issuing and paying agents or the custodians or the transfer agents or whoever, they're there for a reason. Uh, of course, they bring in efficiency. Of course, they bring middlemen. Of course, they bring increased costs and you know, longer settlement times and things like that. But to, to be able to remove them without breaking anything, mm-hmm. it's going to take longer than people think. So. And hopefully the block will be there along the way to watch it and <laughs> record history. That's good for you guys. It means it's you great, will be read yeah. for a longer period of time. I hope so. Blockchain will not <laughs> pass that. <laughs> how, how do you see kind of the the uh, tokenized security issuance landscape developing? Do you see consolidation down the line? Do you see room for... Oh, there's got to uh, be consolidation. I think there's that, like a thousand no. of you. Many different so players. The, the 15,000 companies that Frank said that last week announced that they're entering the security yeah. token space. Within the next 18 months, 99% of them are going to disappear. Yeah. I'm 100% guaranteed to you. First, because, you know, I, I've there's done, not enough deals. There's not enough deals to start with. Second, there's very few, there's some companies on the space, like say, like us, Harvard, Polymath, even though we do have different approaches, whatever, but that we have, you know, raised enough money and have enough brand equity to be able to, like, get to see most of the deals. And then there's a, the, the appetite from the VCs to put more money on the space is limited at the moment because they've already placed their bets, right? Mm-hmm. They invested in us. Or well, we just, we just saw a standard tokenization protocol raise. Seven million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. $7 not going to take you very long. Uh, so, but I think that a lot of these companies that have raised a small amount of money and they're not driving any revenue, they're going to have a problem to stay in business. And I don't think that 
consolidation will happen. I think you'll see more companies going out of business than consolidation because what are you going to consolidate? A company that has a technology that is kind of similar than you, but less developed and doesn't have any customer base. So yeah, no, that makes sense. So if so, if you don't see this this uh, a future in consolidation, primarily because no one has any real kind of competitive advantage, what aspects of of uh, of, of particular businesses kind of separate themselves from from their competitors. I think that in, in our case, I think that the main reason we win deals, there are for two reasons. One is because we have the credibility that we have actually issued real securities as opposed to 99% of our competitors that have done a lot of press releases but very few actual deals that have been actually issued on the blockchain. So is that a fast mover advantage? There? It's a fast mover advantage, but it's also an execution advantage because Polymath started before us. Sure. So it's not a fast mover. They were in the market before us and some companies, you know, that they come from the ICO space and people did two STOs, they were... Uh, I was actually in the Polymath ICO. Really? <laughs> yeah. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> you just told yeah, everyone. Told, told thousands of people. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, like I like Trevor. I was with him last uh, at Consensus in oh, New York so and fun. I went to met Kevin North. This, we should this have guy, him on the podcast. I like him on a personal level. I just think that the way they approach the market is not maybe the one that is going to win because if a sells issuance with a, a yeah. token but that's their business model and my business model is different and, and that's it so there's no there's no blood bad or anything it's actually a good relationship but i just think that and, and by the way they have enough money to to survive through through the security token winter that might happen um so yeah my money eh? <laughs> <laughs> probably your money and someone else's money not just your money tails of whale <laughs> wasn't just my money and then, tails of polymath the, whale i think the other thing that separates us <laughs> apart is that the fact that we are integrated with exchanges because ultimately people want not just the exchanges but the ecosystem. Like if yeah. you come to us, we're integrated with custodians like you know Coinbase or Kingdom Trust or Vault or all these guys. We integrate with you know Open Finance, which no one else is integrated. We're open with Shortspot that no one else is integrated. We integrate with T Zero now, and that you know give them the uh, you know what they need to reach the the ecosystem, right? So so not just like if you issue with a standalone protocol that no one is using, it's going to be very hard for you to get adopted by anyone else because mm -hmm. changes are not going to adopt like 10 yeah, protocols no, they will do one or two at most and that's it and move on so yeah. well thank you so much for coming on we had fun thank you for the conversation you're the welcome and no everything. no worries <laughs> uh safe travels you got a flight yeah i got a flight now all right well thank you so much <laughs> thank you very much yes. we'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor cash app Cash App has been the number one in finance on the App Store for almost two years. It was the first major peer-to-peer -peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to on-ramp fiat. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfer to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code it's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, Chipotle, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, Dunkin', local coffee shops, and a whole lot more. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and thanks for listening.